Du lytter til RMC Podcast. Det her afsnit er et online foredrag med Dr. Valerie Young, som er ekspert på impostorsyndrom. Foredraget fandt sted den 5. maj ved en virtuel Q&A i et samarbejde mellem RMC, Komponistforeningen og DPA. Derfor er lydkvaliteten derefter. God fornøjelse. Welcome to this Q&A about imposter syndrome called Being an Artist in Uncertain Times with imposter syndrome expert Dr. Valerie Young. My name is Nana. I'm a student at RMC and I will be your Q&A moderator today. RMC and myself have been planning this for a while now since we think it's an important issue to address, especially if you're a creative human being. The coronavirus have both made it impossible for us to meet in person, and it has also affected students and artists tremendously in general. Therefore, we're very happy to present this Q&A to hopefully help artists and students with some of the imposter thoughts that can appear through times like these. To help us better understand this phenomenon, we are very honored to be joined by Dr. Valerie Young, who's an expert on imposter syndrome. She has spoken at 95 colleges and universities in the US, Canada, Japan, Europe, and the UK, including Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, and the University of Copenhagen. And she's also the author of the book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. I hereby present to you imposter syndrome expert, Dr. Valerie Young. Thank you so much, Nana. I am so excited to be here. I feel like I'm back in Denmark. Uh, I love being there in January. My, that was my third trip to Copenhagen, one of my favorite um, cities and one of my favorite countries. So I'm really excited to be here today to talk about imposter syndrome. And I'm going to try to take what I would normally cover in an hour and kind of compress it down to 30 minutes. But we'll, we'll definitely hit, you know, hit the high points for you. And I want to begin by just asking you, how many of you have had that I'm in over my head and they're going to find out feeling? I can see you, so I want to see you raise your hand. Good. So it's not just me who's felt that way. So let me start by defining what it is and as importantly, what it is not. Uh, I'll start with what it's not. Imposter syndrome is not a fancy term for low self-esteem. There are some studies that have connected the two. Other studies find no connection. So it's possible to have you know, relatively healthy self-esteem and still have imposter feelings. Imposter feelings are more specific to achievement arenas, right? Self-esteem is more of a global sense, how we feel about ourselves, but uh, imposter feelings come up in achievement situations, in school, in work, your career, business. You don't feel like an imposter when you're walking the dog or doing the dishes, but you do when you're at school or you're at an audition or someone is critiquing your work. So what is imposter syndrome? Well, it's actually not a psychologically diagnosable syndrome. It's actually a horrible name. It got given some time over the years. Uh, it's more accurately known as the imposter phenomenon. Uh, and it was something that was discovered in the late 1970s by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. And basically what it means is that there's a lot of, you know, all over the world, right? Millions and millions of intelligent, capable, competent, talented people like yourselves who, despite evidence to the contrary, feel like deep down they're really not as intelligent, capable, competent, talented as other people seem to think they are. So, so what's happening? Well, it, what's so interesting about imposter syndrome is there's evidence of our abilities, concrete, 
tangible evidence of our accomplishments or abilities. But when you feel like an imposter, you become very good at explaining them away. Well, okay, sure I was successful, or sure I did it, or sure they said they liked it, you know, but I can explain all that, right? So we dismiss our accomplishments as like luck or timing, you know, it won't happen next time, I just had a lucky break, or they're just saying that, or just because they like me, um, you know, and, and so we find all these excuses for, for our um, success. So the, the bigger question is, um, you know, what are we going to do about it? So today, you know, again, in our short time together, I want to give you some information, give you some opportunity for insight, and lastly, give you some tools to address it. And I think one key piece of information is to understand that imposter syndrome is not just an interesting self-help topic. The reason I have spoken to so many universities, as well as major corporations from Google to Boeing to Microsoft, uh, is because they understand that there are also behaviors associated with imposter syndrome. When you feel like an imposter, and trust me, I, I, the reason I know so much about this topic is was when I was a graduate student, I felt like a huge imposter. That's why I decided to start studying it. Um, but, but when you feel like an imposter, you have to find ways just unconsciously to avoid being found out. So we develop these kind of common coping and protecting mechanisms to to both manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out and to avoid being found out. So for some of you, that might be what I describe as kind of flying under the radar. You know, this sense that if I can kind of keep a low profile, keep my head down, don't put myself out there, uh, then it will protect me, right? I can protect myself from humiliation or disappointment and they won't notice I'm not that talented. Uh, or we might procrastinate. And let me be clear, all students procrastinate. It goes with the territory. When I was supposed to be writing my dissertation to become Dr. Valerie Young, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, I posted an article in there that <laughs> talks about kind of the good news about procrastination, which we can talk about later. Uh, but procrastination can also be a way that we protect ourselves. So if we procrastinate, we wait till the very last minute. And then the results are poor. The results reflect the fact that we didn't give it enough time. Then we have a built-in excuse, right? Then we could say, well, I'm, you know, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised that it, was, it didn't go well because I didn't put in as much effort. But, but the problem is if we were successful, if they thought it was great, then we feel like we fooled them. Oh my God, they're going to find out. So and unfortunately for some of you that could turn into never starting or finishing. And way too many, you know, talented, intelligent students drop out of school, never complete things, again, as a way to kind of protect themselves. Others, it might be self-sabotage, showing up late to an important, to, to class or an important audition or important meeting or a job interview. It could be alcohol or substance abuse. Uh, and then I think for a lot of us, it turns into overworking, over-preparing. And now we all have to work hard. I want to be really clear about that. But sometimes we, we use it as a way to, to sense that, yeah, I, they think I'm great, but it's only because I have to work harder than other people. So I just want you to be aware there are these behaviors that they serve us, they protect us, but we always pay a cost for all of those behaviors. So the bigger question right now is where do these feelings come from? Why do so many people from Academy Award-winning actors to people who've won the Nobel Prize to you know, CEOs of huge, very, very successful companies and, and lots of creative people, why do they feel this way? 
Well, I like to think of them as perfectly good reasons why you might feel like a fraud. And I, and I frame it that way because my mission is to normalize these feelings. I think we do way too much psychologizing and we need to do more normalizing so that we can go, well, why wouldn't I, right? It makes perfect sense. So there are different reasons why you might have imposter feelings. It might be messages you got growing up. It might be uh, expectations of perfection from your parents, or maybe they weren't particularly interested in academics, or maybe you know, being you being more interested in creative things that, you know, that kind of set you apart and made you different from other students who are excelling in, you know, science and things like that. It could be um, different situational factors. I mean, just being a student all by itself, period, makes you much more likely to have imposter feelings, which makes sense. You, you signed up to be in a situation where you're having your intellect, your knowledge, and your talent critiqued, evaluated, graded, and tested on a daily basis. So students, much more than the general population, are more likely to have um, imposter feelings. We also know that people who work alone, people who are remote workers or self-employed, and now with the, the COVID, you're all in isolation in so many ways. So you're also probably feeling that. You don't have people to bounce ideas off of, get feedback. And so that can kind of exacerbate those feelings as well. And a big one that I want you to understand here, especially, is being in a creative field makes you way more susceptible. There are certain fields that are more susceptible, like medicine, technology, because they're very information dense and rapidly changing. But people in creative fields as a category are also much more likely to have imposter feelings than other people in other fields, which makes sense, right? You're being judged by somewhat subjective standards. You are, um, your work is highly public, which is very different than if you were in marketing or you were, you were an, an accountant. Um, and you're only as good as your last performance. So you're being, you know, kind of judged over and over and over again, based on what you did last time. And, and you're in a profession that is defined by rejection. Right. So it makes sense. And I say this not to depress you, <laughs> but to have you go, well, yeah, this is what I signed up for. This is the world that I operate in. And some of the most, again, most talented, you know, musicians and actors and writers on the planet have these feelings for a reason. There's other reasons, you know, being an international student, if you grew up working class and suddenly there was a, a, a opera singer who he worked on a ranch in Colorado and he ended up singing opera at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And he's hobnobbing, socializing with very wealthy people. And he just felt like he didn't fit, you know, that he had fooled everyone. Uh, gender can play a role. There's been um, research where they would have people uh, have a blind audition where the, the judges could not see the gender of the person performing. And when it was a blind audition, women would advance to the next round and the next round at a much higher rate than if it wasn't that way. So there are different situational and social factors that play into imposter syndrome. The biggest reason, though, and the one that we can do something about, that we all share in common, all of us who've had imposter feelings, is that we have this unrealistic, unsustainable expectations for what it means to be competent. We hold ourselves to this, this bar that we cannot consistently hit. We can hit it sometimes but we think we should hit it 100% of the time. So it's not a matter of if you're going to be disappointed, <laughs> it's when, right? Because we can't sustain that. No, And no one can. 
So there's different kind of competence types, if you will, ways that you might think about competence. For some of you, it's perfectionism. So for you, it has to be 100% flawless, perfect each and every time, or you, you feel like an imposter. You experience shame. For others of you, you might be, I call them the expert, like the knowledge version of the perfectionist who thinks, you know, you have to know 150% before you dare raise your hand or put yourself out there. Then there's the person I call the natural genius. It doesn't mean they are a genius. It doesn't mean they think they're a genius. What it means is they think that if they were really talented or intelligent, this wouldn't be this hard. And especially in creative fields, I can imagine you feel like you should have come out of the womb knowing how to perform at a, at a very you know, high level. When in reality, you know, it's not about ease and speed. It's about persistence and sticking with it and, 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 and getting, you know, building on maybe some innate talent or just no talent at all, but, but be sticking with it and sticking with it and getting better and better. Then there's the soloist. And you think it only counts if you do it all by yourself. Right. So you think, you know, uh, competent people shouldn't need help. The fact that you might need help sometime or advice or mentoring or tutoring proves you must be an imposter. And then we have the superwoman or superman or super student who not only expects yourself to, to excel academically, but also to to volunteer and be a perfect, you know, maybe a, a parent or a homemaker or, or a partner or a community member. So you judge yourself very high on all these different in all these different um, areas. So again, if, if you identify with imposter syndrome, I want you to kind of step back and look at what is that bar that you were holding yourself to and is it truly realistic? I, I wanna shift into um, what, what the solutions are. Um, and the first one is kind of showing up here today. Was there anybody here who was a little nervous about coming to something like this? Like, well, what will that suggest to other people if I show up for this topic? And were there anybody who was, had never heard the term before, before you saw this, this talk? Uh, was that a relief to anybody? I, I know it was to me. When I first found out there was, it was like, you mean there's a name for this? <laughs> and other people feel that way? That alone was very comforting to me. So talking about these nebulous feelings of fraudulence and that we're fooling people is a really important first step, but it's just a step. And I say that because some people get into this cycle of endlessly talking about it over and over and over. I was speaking at NASA, um, which they send the space rockets up in the US, and, this, and, and a student from a school in Florida raised her hand, she said, we, I'm a graduate student, and we talk about this with my other students. Every single day, we talk about our imposter syndrome. I said, great. Are you doing anything about it? She said, no. <laughs> we just talk about it. And I mentioned that because you can't share your way out of imposter syndrome. As a matter of fact, psychologists have found that people who, they call it co-ruminating, people who dwell on negative thoughts and feelings with their friends, so all of your friends like, oh, me too, I feel the same, but you just keep talking about it, you actually end up feeling higher levels of depression and anxiety. So talking about the first step, but you can't show your way out of imposter syndrome. So what can you do? I'm going to give you three things, simple, concrete, but they're non-negotiable. You have to do all three. The first one is to normalize imposter feelings. 
to normalize it. It has been estimated that up to 70% of high achievers, of which you all are, have had these feelings at one time or another. It's actually higher in one study with CEOs in the UK, found that 80% of CEOs and 81%, I think it was, of managing directors say they sometimes feel out of their depth and that they're struggling in their role. So this is where I have to break it to you that you're not special. <laughs> a lot of people feel this way for really good reasons. So, and you're in, you're in really great company. Again, when you think about how many very successful creative people feel like um, imposters from, you know, Tom Hanks and Maya Angelou and Tina Fey, and again, some of the most successful people um, on the planet who've gotten their work out there despite their imposter feelings. It may surprise you to know that the goal from my perspective is not to never feel like an imposter again, because when you normalize it, you go, well, I'm going to have these feelings because I'm in a creative field. I'm in a world of constant rejection. When you normalize that, it's not about never feeling this way. It's about putting it into a context, doing more contextualizing and less personalizing. But it's also about having the information, having the insight and the tools to talk yourself down faster. So when you have a normal imposter moment to talk yourself down faster. And this is important because people who don't feel like imposters, right? That 30%, right? We're the 70%, we're the majority. But that 70%, some part of them have a whole different problem, right? Irrational self-confidence syndrome. You know, they think they know way more than they really know. They think they're way more talented than they really are, right? But, but some part of that 30%, they just have a whole different way of thinking, right? The only difference between people who feel like imposters and people who don't is in the exact same situation where you and I might feel like an imposter, they are thinking different thoughts. That's it. They're thinking different thoughts which is really good news because it means all we have to do is to learn how to think like that. I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Excuse me. <coughs> I have to tell you, I was once on a stage in front of 400 people and I started coughing and I had to step aside and take a drink of water. And I came back to the audience and I said, how many of you would be mortified right now if you were up on stage and you started coughing? And people raised their hand. And I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> and it's not that I don't care. It's, would I rather not cough? Yes. But guess what? No one stormed out of the room. Everyone was fine. And I just continued with my talk. So I think my job sometimes is to like, like be a mole model for like, hey, things don't work out perfect. <clears throat> and we're all going to be okay. So the, the key is I want you to become consciously aware of the conversation that goes on in your head when you have a normal imposter moment. And then you're going to do step two. First one is normalize. Step two is to reframe. In other words, I want you to consciously step back and say, if I could call in an actor to play the part of me right now who didn't feel like an imposter, how, how would they be thinking right now? People who don't feel like imposters, it's not, that, it's not about just giving yourself a pep talk. You've got it and you can do it. They think differently about three things. They think differently about competence. They think differently about, this is one category, failure, mistakes, and criticism. We'll put those together. And they think differently about fear. 
So non-imposters know that there's no such thing as perfect, right? You could have always done it a little bit better. And that's not to say to strive to be a perfectionist. It's about, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough. And, uh, you know, the next time, you know, the third time you do something is going to be better than the first. The hundredth time you do something, it's going to be better than the 50th time. You know, we're all kind of a work in progress. Non-imposters know not only is there no shame in reaching out and asking for help, they see it as, as a form of competence. Like what a competent person would do right now is to figure out, okay, who knows more about this? Who can help me? And how can I re access that resource to, to, to achieve my goal? I think specifically, again, in creative fields, because built into the music world is rejection. It's, just, it's, it's part of the territory, right? So that's, I think, where perhaps many of us need to do you know, the most amount of work because so often I think we let it mean more about who we are as a person. So if someone says that that performance was inadequate or that paper was inadequate, we hear, I'm inadequate. When, you know, and, and there's so often there's this kind of shame associated with criticism. People who don't feel like imposters, I'm not saying they're happy, right? I mean, sometimes critical feedback, it can hurt, definitely. But they often seek it out, not from the general public. <laughs> That's scary, right? You're always going to have people out there who are very rude and insensitive. But they seek out feedback from teachers, from advisors, from mentors, from peers, and ask them, how could I do this even better? Even if someone says, that was excellent, you want to say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done even better? Because you want to see yourself as this, as this work. Um, in progress, because it's so easy to get crushed and wounded um, by criticism. Um, I want—I just want to take a look at my notes here for a minute. There's a few things I want to make sure. And, and another point I want to make specifically for musicians is that no one whose opinion matters is going to give you. They're not going to waste their time giving you feedback if they don't think you are capable, competent, qualified, talented enough. To, to take that and improve. They wouldn't waste their time. So again, I want you to start seeing uh, critical feedback as a gift. And, but, and I don't mean on social media, right? For, like, forget that. It's kind of like the Olympics. You know, they have the high score and the low score, right? Because they're not really objective, the judges, in a way they are, but they're not. And that's why with, with the gymnasts, they, they, they throw out the high score, they throw out the low score, and that's what I invite you to do, because sometimes people aren't realistic on the high end and they're not realistic on the low end, and find that middle ground where you can take some value out of it. And when you think about it, you don't like everyone else's work out there. Why would everyone like yours? We think of success so often as being like this, right? This kind of straight line tra trajectory. And in reality, success is like this. Uh, I realize this is not an example from a creative field, but if you Google Princeton Professor Failure CV, Princeton Professor Failure CV, this tenured professor at, at Princeton has this very impressive CV on his website, but he also has his failure CV. The conferences that rejected him, the publications that rejected him, the jobs he didn't get, because that's real life. It's not like this. It's like this. 
So it's what we do with setbacks and adversity and disappointment. Again, you can be crushingly disappointed if you fail or you bomb or you don't get the job. It, you can be crushingly disappointed, but not ashamed. The only time you should feel shame is if you, number one, if you didn't try, shame on you. Or if you procrastinated so long that it reflected in, your, in the results. But otherwise, crushingly disappointed, but not ashamed. Uh, the last thing that people who uh, feel like don't feel like imposters think differently about is fear. How many of you have a fear of public speaking? Could I see a show of hands? You would hate to be up on a stage in front of hundreds of people. Do you know it's the number one fear? Number two is death. So what that really means is... <laughs> The, the the comedian Seinfeld says what that really means is you'd rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. I mean, think about that for a moment. I mention that because your body does not know the difference between fear and excitement. Sweaty palms, nervous stomach, dry throat. So whether it's walking up to the podium or into the audition or into a meeting or a class, you have to keep telling yourself, I'm excited. I'm excited. You don't have to believe it because that's where the third tool comes in. You have to keep going. You have to keep going regardless of the messages you got growing up. You have to keep going regardless of whether you might be being evaluated differently based on your accent or based on your appearance or your gender. You have to keep going regardless of the fact that you are in a creative field where there's lots of rejection. And you definitely have to keep going regardless of how you feel. In other words, feelings are the last to change. What you want is to stop feeling like an imposter, but that's not how it works. Feelings are the last to change. You have to change how you think. And then you have to, even though you don't believe the new thoughts yet, and then you have to change your behaviors by, in other words, so many people wait until they feel more confident to do things, but it doesn't work that way. You have to do the thing that feels scary, see how it goes, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, how could I make it better? How could I get some support? How could I get some coaching or some advice or some input, more practice? What do I need to make it better? And then to get out there and try again and try again and try again. So it's not about avoiding setbacks, failure, rejection. It, it really is, is how, we, how we handle that. And the last thing I want to uh, leave you with, we're going to open it up to hopefully lots of Q&A, is that this is not all about you. That everyone loses when bright, talented people hold back. Everyone loses when bright, talented people um, play small. Uh, can you see in the chat, I posted another article from... Uh, what do I do with the fellow? I want to make sure that I pronounce his name relatively correctly. Kinuoka? Uh, and he, it was a wonderful article in The Guardian that says, I'm living my dream and I was wasting it with thoughts of inferiority. These imposter feelings are such a big emotional suck, you know, and they're taking away from some what we could be doing out there in the world, uh, which is, you know, being a student, learning as much as we can. I mean, look, you're a student, you're here to learn. You're supposed to feel stupid. <laughs> That's what it's all about. You're in a learning situation. So allow yourself to not understand, not know, and, and to keep learning. 
but recognize that if you do hold back, if you stop, if you drop out, if you change careers, there, there's a loss, right? Everyone will lose because every single person here has something to contribute musically. And by withholding those gifts, everyone suffers. So stop being selfish right? <laughs> and get out there and, and, and put your talents out in, into the world. Thank you. That was very interesting. I definitely learned a lot from this presentation, even though I've heard you speak before. It's like, yeah, there's so many things about this imposter phenomenon that's so um, interesting to think about. I really appreciate what you said about fear and excitement and about disappointment versus shame. That really, yeah, that really made me think about myself and how well, I you know, And also, Nan, I remember when we talked before, I was telling you that Joan Baez was a famous yeah. uh, singer. She had horrible stage fright. She would yeah. come out on stage, start performing, have to excuse herself, vomit, and come back on stage. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. But the key is she came back. You know, exactly. Barbara Streisand, horrible stage fright, you know? So uh, it, it's very normal. It's not an indicator of talent. It's something we have to cope with. Yeah, exactly. But I'm really happy to see that so many people are interested in imposter syndrome. And maybe we can end this with, um, with some recommendations from you, Valerie. If someone wants to learn more about imposter syndrome, where can they find more information and learn more about it? Sure. Uh, you can go to impostorsyndrome.com, which is my website. Uh, I did write a book with Random House. It's in five other uh, languages besides English. Uh, the title is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, but don't be put off by the title. It, men can benefit a lot as well. Uh, I always tell people, read chapter six, which is called The Competence Rulebook for Mere Mortals. For this audience, I would also really encourage you to read chapter seven, which is all about developing a healthy response to failure, mistakes, and criticism. And then the last chapter is called Playing Big. So what would it mean to really show up and play big, which is what mm. I really invite um, all of you to do. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Valerie Young. It's been a pleasure having you teach us today. And I also just want to say thank you to RMC, DPA and Dance Komponist for Aining for making this happen. Thank you so much and have a great evening. Oh, det her, det var RMC podcast. 